Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adamian Golf. So Adams, you're dealing with some tree issues, some technical issues over there. I'm you're amped little... up. Yeah. <laughs> he just he just said before we hit the record button that he's really amped up. So I'm just trying to warn everyone. I'm going to chill out <laughs> before I break something. <laughs> so we, we're just starting the podcast five minutes before, and then people decided to cut the trees down outside the public trees. So it's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre out there right now. So having to move rooms and then trying to get all the gear ready and having loads of technical difficulties so i'm having to chill just relax having to tap into my meditation experience Mm. yeah (laughs) well i don't hear any trees in the background so in case anyone does hear them that is the reason adam's not being attacked by a someone leather face leather face isn't coming uh i love that movie I watched that movie way too young. I have an older brother. He made me watch that movie when I was really young and many other horror movies and uh, left a lasting impact on me. Anyway, this is our first episode of 2024. Technically, you and me last, I believe last week we had Tori Tallis's episode. So happy new year. Yeah. Happy new year. I thought you were saying that to the audience. You're saying it no, to me. No, I mean, yeah, I'm saying new. it to everyone. I'm saying it <laughs> yeah. to you. I'm saying it to everyone. Happy new year. Welcome to 2024. Yeah, I guess. Uh, what are we doing today? I thought of doing 10 ways to improve your game. But as usual, when I started writing the list, that turned into 20, then 30. So yeah, just ways of improving your game. Just more of a list, more of an overarching view rather than going too much of a deep dive into each one. Although we'll see how that goes, right? Yeah, and then I said before we hit record that we're probably going to get through three of these. And if you listen to the show quite often, this seems to be a reoccurring theme with us. But yeah, I mean, we've been doing this for, I think this is our fourth year now of doing this we're really? at like 110 episodes yeah and oh you and God. i were we were texting the other day and we're like can people remember all the episodes we've done and all of the information we've talked about because half of the time to be honest with everyone i don't think Adam and myself remember everything so and really coaching is kind of reinforcing similar themes so if you've been along for the ride for a long time you know we want to continue reinforcing main themes of the show and sometimes we just forget what we've covered and sometimes it'll be new and not new but yeah we're gonna hit some different topics today we'll see how quickly or not quickly we get through them speaking of which i saw you post about your negative putting performance on twitter no it was actually a humble flex it was humble flex exactly first of all yeah adam posted he's like (laughs) He gained like 17 strokes with his approach and drives pretty much indicating he's elite ball striker. And then like he had a bad putting day. So he was showing people he was trying to make himself vulnerable with a negative four. You lost like four strokes putting. But then obviously he was showing off that he struck the hell out of the ball, too. Yeah, I was showing off. Yeah, (laughs) it was one of those rounds where you walk off so frustrated because it's like, yeah, what could have been been something like crazy now? Wish I got. It was one of those where I'm not just hitting shots close to putting it. I'm knocking 150 yard shots to three feet, like over and, and over, putt. and missing them. Like I missed oh. four three footers 
four three footers and even my long putts as well like I'd have a 15 foot putt and I'd ram it to seven foot past and then miss the one coming back it was just ridiculous putting but it was so cold out there I'm surprised I could even swing a golf club but yeah it was one of those I think I shot like five under par or something and it should have been 10 but it was forward tees yeah, well, still, that's a hell of a round. I can't even play much right now. I've got, I don't even know if that episode came out. No, I, it's so hard to remember. We've recorded so many bad. We have an episode of Chasing Scratch that will appear after this. I think I talked about the MRI. I got an MRI in my elbow. I've got some bad tennis elbow. I got some tears in my elbow, I found out. It's not horrible, but I'm doing rehab every other day. Was so that overuse can, or was that one one bad swing? I don't know. You know, it started in like, I'd say April of 2023. And I did some of the protocols that Mike Carroll has a great episode with attendant expert on the Fit for Golf podcast. Uh, I think his name is Dr. Keith Barr. So I'd done some of the isometric hold exercises, which is what they think is the main, you know, rehab protocol for any tendon problems. And it kind of went away, but then, you know, in October, I lift weights all year long, but as I started ramping up as the off season started approaching, I think I overdid it. And yeah, the pain's not horrible. It's probably like between a two and four out of 10, but I can feel it when I play and hit balls. So, you know, I saw a doctor, I got an MRI. She's like, yeah, you've got some tears. Not horrible, but I saw a PT. So I've been doing my physical therapy every other day. So I'm not hitting a ton of balls. I'm just, I can still hit balls, but I can't overdo it. So I'm trying to be smart while we're in the winter months so that hopefully when Springtime rolls around, I'll be able to play pain-free or at least reduce the pain. So it's kind of making me like appreciate golf because I've been lucky enough where I really haven't had many injuries over the years. Yeah, I'm struggling a little at the moment as well, mainly because I've ramped up my, I'm hitting 40 soon. And Welcome. so, yeah, six months time. And so I've got a goal of getting my weight down. I'm going to drop about 15 pounds. So I'm at my pre-America level, get my European body back in shape just for no reason other than I want to see if I can achieve it. And so I've ramped up my exercise. And so I'm, I'm walking an hour a day, at least I'm doing some Oculus Quest exercises for an hour a day. And then I'm hitting the gym for an hour a day. So I'm trying to burn a thousand calories a day and then cut my diet down a little bit, which is probably overkill. But anyway, I've started to get tight from all of the exercises that I'm doing. You know, I'm doing double the work in the gym. And so combine that with the cold and I've injured my shoulder a few times when I'm going out there. It's absolutely fine when I'm swinging indoors and it's 70 degrees indoors. But once I get out there and it's 40 degrees, just that shoulder starts hitting. So uh, yeah, I've had to make a couple of changes to my technique to alleviate that, which we can talk about. All right. Well, our 40 and near 40 year old bodies are Breaking, breaking down, down rapidly. Yeah. yeah, I don't think of it that way though. No. I'm like, I'm obsessed with my longevity and, and keeping my body ready. Like my current stack of habits, we'll talk, I think we're going to be talking about goals and habits. Maybe this is a nice segue into that. Right now, my daily or weekly routine is similar to yours. I wake up, I do 15 minutes on my Peloton. I walk about 35 to 40 minutes every day with my wife and then I'm strength training three to four times a week. And I do have the Apple Watch. That usually gets me somewhere to like that 700 to 1,000. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's like my current. I stick to that. I feel good about it. It's something I could 
do it on repeat and not think about it. And that's like, I've built that over the last couple of years, but yeah, the daily walking is amazing. I think that's one of the best habits I've adopted over the last two years. Yeah, I'm getting almost 15,000 steps in a day on average right now. Well, you have a dog, right? Yeah, she's very active as a puppy. So I take her on a three and a half mile walk. And then sometimes in the evening, I'll stick YouTube on and walk on the treadmill for a little bit longer as well. Yeah, walking is like, I mean, the health benefits are incredible. So I hope everyone else develops a walking habit. It's just such a great thing to do. And I often come up with golf course, right? Yeah. Also, I come up with ideas for my book or the podcast or whatever helps me calm down. I I go into, you know, I'm writing a new book on competitive golf and I talk about how I, you know, the walking meditation, like while I walk in a non-golf setting, I'm still trying to get myself into a zone that I would get myself into while I play golf in a tournament. I think that's really important. So yeah, everyone should walk. So Yeah. Since it is the new year, um, I think I did a post on internal and external goals and my thoughts on goals. We've talked about this a decent amount on the show. Like I don't start the year and like write down like 50 goals I want to achieve. I'm not like that. (laughs) I do. Well, that's what's interesting. I think people need, it could get a little bit more complicated than this, but I think it's very easy to think about the whole thing in an internal versus external goal way. Whereas external goals are, you know, in a golf context, it would be reaching a certain handicap or saying, I want to win a club championship. Or like you said, you want to lose 15 pounds. Like these are the stick of the carrot that you're going towards. It's your ultimate motivation. But I find some people will write these goals down, especially in the golf context. And then there's just no practical way to achieve them. And that's where the internal goals come in. Those are, you know, your habits, your belief system, things you can check off every day, like saying like, I want to get really healthy and to say, okay, I will ride my bike, walk and lift weights. Like I will do that X amount of times a week. Those are my internal goals. And then the external goal is like, I just want to be healthy, be pain-free and live longer. Yeah. I need both. I know you're very much on the habits. You have to have both really. Well, I suppose so. I mean, so for example, I want to lose 15 pounds. That's my goal. I have that as the carrot. But then I have to have the habits to break that goal down as well. My habits are going to be burn 800 to 1,000 calories a day, at least five days a week, and then also cut my calories, how much I'm eating, or monitor those and eat only 2,000. And I know that if I do that, I will lose the 15 pounds easily. There's a little bit of a buffer in there as well for mistakes. You know, those days where you want a little bit of extra French toast, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's similar. Lots of my goals this year are about business. You know, I want to actually make the most of the podcast listeners as well. So I'm thinking about doing, you know, how can I collect more of the emails of the podcast listeners so they get into my ecosystem a little bit more. And so creating good quality lead magnets, which for people who's not aware of what that term is, you know, it's, it's maybe an event or something like that, or a free ebook, something that's going to provide value for people. And so uh, they're more likely to want to come into the ecosystem and really dive deep into Adam Young Golf philosophy. Heck yeah. It is interesting to me how people think about this differently. So for example, this was the only interview you were never a part of, but Mackenzie Hughes came on the show. And we talked a little bit about our coaching relationship and what drives him. And he's very much someone who, like we were talking the other day and 
don't know if you've ever noticed this, like Justin Thomas is a golfer who every year he seems to like put a list of like goals. And I think at the end, yeah, he didn't play as well as he wanted to in 2023. And I think he jokingly posted the list of his goals for the year, which was like, you know, win a major top, whatever in the world rankings, all external goals. And he didn't achieve any of them. And McKenzie looks at a list like that and he's like, I can't do that. You know, obviously like it's inherent in him that he wants to make the president's cup team. You know, 2024 is a big year for international golf. He wants to make president's cup in the Olympics. He wants to win. Of course, those are all like, even if you're a regular golfer, you want to lower your handicap, but what can you do on a daily basis? What list of things can you create that you can hold yourself accountable to get there? So you feel good about it along the way, because at some point, like, for example, I wanted to win a club championship. Now, when you play amongst your peers in a club setting, it's actually more pressure. And when you want it too badly and you're thinking about that external goal all the time on the golf course, I found that it made me even more nervous. So what could I do aside from that is stick to my internal goals, which are you know, having my routine before every shot, going to my breathing if I need to, saying I'm not going to give up on my round. So I have kind of like my belief system on what I hold myself accountable to for every round. And that's the same thing we do with McKenzie. He has to send me a list of things that he does well or not well after every round. And I think that's why we work together is because we're similar like that, but not everyone's like that. So that's why it's interesting to have these discussions and have people explore it because not everyone gets to their goals or their version of success the same way. I think this speaks to controllable versus uncontrollable goals. Like yes, when you set that's a, a lot of it. Yeah, when you set a goal like win the US Open, well, that's not in your control because even if you play as amazing as you can, someone else could play better. You know, someone else could have yep. the round of their life. And you're also, you know, we're not in control of our bodies. That's why sport is so interesting. And so when we're setting goals in sport in particular, we have to be very careful what type of goals we set. And habits are much better when it comes to sporting goals because they're more controllable. Whereas when it comes to things like weight loss or a business goal, there's an element of control. Like you can control when your book gets published. I can control exactly. when I produce a certain product. What I can't control is, you know, whether people receive that very, how I would imagine it to. You know, you couldn't say set the goal of I want to sell a million copies of your new book because you just don't know what's going to happen at the end of that. There's lots of things that go in, into that. You know, someone could change the algorithm on Twitter Twitter and all of a sudden your reach goes down or so there's loads of different factors there but stop scaring me yeah i know i don't want to <laughs> but you know setting goals that are controllable like i say you've got the goal of produce your book and then you've got the list of habits the step-by-step that's going to get you there yeah and that's why golf i've had this argument with non-golfers before who've like people who i've come across in like business contexts who are like oh you know i met some people who run other online businesses or in different disciplines like engineering or coding. And they'll be like, well, why don't you create something like this in golf? And I'm like, well, golf doesn't work that way. And it always gets back to control, meaning like you could give someone a blueprint on how to be better at coding, for example. Like that's a very straightforward practice that you have a lot of control over. Like it works or it doesn't. And then you have to go back and figure out why it didn't work. Whereas in golf, like especially in a competitive context, 
you know, when you set goals like winning, you can't control what your opponents are doing, like whether it's match play or in a tournament setting. Like it's just, I think that's why golf is to me such a great teacher in life because it teaches you how to accept so many things that are out of your control. And like, I'm not a psychologist, but I have to believe that like knowing what you can control and can't control and expectation management, like again, these are in religious texts for years, but that is like top two, three, four things to be a happy person. And I think golf is a really good way of teaching you that. So yeah, it's a big deal with goal setting because if you set, like you said, things that are out of your control and you aspire to them and you don't get there, you might feel bad about yourself when it might not have been the right goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, I, w- I want to set myself the goal of hitting it farther. And so it would be easy to say, right, I want to pick up 10 mile an hour of club head speed. But I don't even know if that's possible for me. I mean, it probably is. 10 mile an hour, I would say, is. However, if I said 20 mile an hour, who knows if that's possible, right? That's a big jump. But for some people, it is. If you get 100 people all doing the exact same speed training, there'll be some people who jump up a small amount and some people who jump up a crazy amount. So we can't control that part, how our body responds to training, you know, outcome goals as well, like winning tournaments. You have so many external factors, how your opponents are playing, what your body is going to do on the day, how you deal with the nerves and stress. And even performance goals, like say you said, I want to hit more fairways this year. That's a little bit more controllable because you could look and you could dive deeper and say, right, well, if I work on improving my strike or if I work on improving my club face control. But again, that will come down to habits. So setting yourself these goals are okay, but don't hold yourself to them. It's more about breaking it down into habits then and focusing on those, especially when it comes to sporting performance. Yeah, just it really is a lot of it is making boxes that you can check off. And when you check them off, you feel good about yourself. I think that's, if I had to simplify things, that's really what it is, is make good boxes and then as you check them off each round or practice session or whatever else you're looking to achieve as someone who can be very unorganized and lazy at times and lack motivation, like after all this time, that's how I do it. Even writing this next book, I just know that I'm going to wake up every morning. And at this point I'm editing, I say, I'm going to edit 4,000 words and put it all together. And if I do that over the next eight days, I will hit this benchmark and hopefully have the book for release in March or April. Kind of keeps it within my control. There's something exciting about getting close to that goal though, right? (laughs) When you you know it's a week until I release that book. There's something super exciting. It is exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. So, all right. (laughs) We've spent, I don't know, what did we spend? 15 minutes on that? So So number one goal (laughs) setting. So set your goals, make sure they're controllable, make sure they're more internal, make sure they're more habit-based for uh, sporting performance. So number two way, it's the second way that we can improve our golf in 2024, swing mechanics. So John, I know Mm. you had a little bit to talk about with this. Yeah. I mean, for the first time in a really long time, I've had something in my golf game where I'm like, I've talked about this before, probably for a long time, I wedge play around the greens, specifically like greenside wedges, tighter lie. I'm struggling. Put me in the rough or a bunker. I'm fine outside of 25, 30 yards. I'm fine. But it's more of these 
you know, nippy wedge shots. It happened at the US Mid-Am where I was petrified of them and it really got in my head. And I said, I'm not figuring this out on my own. I need some help. So I saw Andrew Rice, who's been on the show a couple of times. He's someone I respect with wedge play. And I just, you know, I went down to see him and he's at the West in Savannah Harbor, which is an easy trip for me. I saw him in 24 hours. I was in and out of there. But, you know, for the first time in the while, it was work on my technique. There was some camera work. There was a lot of talk about what my body was doing because we had to get to what the issue was. And to break it down is, what am I seeing on the course? I'm not getting functional ground contact. I'm not controlling my low point. So I'm seeing a lot of thin shots or I'm slamming the club into the ground a couple inches behind the ball. I'm just not getting crisp contact with a lot of wedge shots. And there's a lot of fear there as well. And I don't know why it happened, but it kind of drifted over a few years. So Andrew took a look at things. He took a look at my full swing. Just he really wanted to kind of match my full swing DNA with my motion. And, you know, he saw quickly what was happening is I'm stalling out with my rotation. My hands are a little too vertical and I'm dipping in my full swing. I dip a lot, which is I compress and hit iron shots quite well. But as I was doing this with my wedges, as my head was coming down, my hands were coming up because they had no place to go, which is, you know, why I'm making contact thin contact. So we came up with a plan. I worked with them for a few hours, nothing crazy, but, you know, a lot more rotation, trying to limit the dip and just kind of, I mean, the mantra we had was standing tall and rotating and being proud because two things happened. If I stopped rotating, that's when I kind of slammed the club into the ground and chunked it. And if I was excessively dipping, that's when I was sculling it. So yeah, I was just You know, I've been looking at myself on camera a little bit and I kind of had actually a breakthrough last night where I just kind of got back to the rotation of my chest, which is what I did years ago. And just making sure that like my chest is, I'm rehearsing this on camera, no one can see it, but just the simple, you know, thought of me rotating my chest back and through really helped so much. And that's as simple as it got, but, you know, that is the long and short of, I see a problem on the course. I wasn't fixing it myself. I got help. I have a plan. There's going to be some technical work. And then hopefully in three or four months, I won't be thinking about it too much on the course. Yeah, I'm actually doing something similar in the long game right now. Not for the sake of doing something just to change the technique, but because of the injury issue that I talked about. You know, my shoulder is a little tight I've always had a pretty disconnected swing. So, you know, my arms separate quite a lot from my body. My lead arm goes across my chest. What do you call that? Abduction, right? No, adduction. Uh, yeah, I think of abduction. Asking, <laughs> abduction is going away like alien abduction. That's how I remember it. So adduction, <laughs> it's moving across my chest, you know, so my left arm just pinning, squeezing against my chest a little bit too much. And then that causes some stress on the shoulder muscle. And when it gets tight and when it gets cold outside, I can sometimes get a little pain. So uh, what I've been doing is feeling like the chest rotates more and the arms are just coming with it kind of like a connection feeling to give people an analogy imagine you win a big teddy bear at the fairground is this all american terminology here what do you call them is, is this understandable win a big teddy yeah, bear uh, all right imagine yeah. you, imagine you're hugging fair. that teddy bear and you're turning everything together 
So you're not letting that arm crush your chest because you can't because the teddy bear's in the way. So that's the feeling that I've got at the moment. And yeah, it's helping me. It's not really an impact goal, which is, you know, I talk all about all about impact goals, but I do mention that the other reason for making a swing change would be to limit injury. And this is a reason for me to do this. And it's working. I get a lot less stress on the uh, shoulder. But it's scary. You know, I played the other day and it's scary because you stand over the golf ball and you're making this new motion and you're so secure with the old motion. You know the old motion performs well and you have to try and make this new motion that you don't know if it's going to perform well. And then there's this thing of, well, am I going to get caught between the old motion and the new motion? So you have to keep a lot of concentration on it, which on the range is really easy to do, right? You can just focus on the motion. But when you get on the course and you start to have your mind wander onto the target and the danger, um, it can be harder to keep your focus on that motion. So it's been a good exercise for me for injury prevention, but also for understanding, remembering what other people are going through when they're going through swing motion changes. Yeah, I think those two scenarios, I think, sum up a lot of what we've talked about on the show for a long time in our philosophy. Like, if you're going to make some type of change in your movement, there's got to be a really good reason and it has to solve the problem. So, for me, problems, skulls and chunks, I wasn't solving it. Go to a professional, you look at it, you're great with wedges, seize it in a couple of seconds. Okay, here's the plan. Now I'm going to spend the next few months struggling with this. It's not been pleasant because I'm going to be stuck between two motions just like you are, but I want to work through that frustration so that when I get to the course in the spring, then I'll feel a little bit more comfortable with it, hopefully. No guarantees, but that's the process. And I haven't taken that step in any other part of my game. I would not do that with my full swing because there's too much to lose there. And I don't see a good reason because I don't think I stand more to gain than I would lose with the technical intervention. But with my wedges, I went to Andrew. I'm like, I can't play in tournaments like this anymore. I can't go to a national tournament or somewhere else just totally clueless over the golf ball with a wedge in my hand around the green. Like That's not acceptable to me. So I'm willing to go through this process now, but there's reasons behind everything why I have to make that change in my motion because right now it's not getting the job done. It's not functional. Yeah, and now is the perfect time to do it in winter because the hardest time to make a golf change or the hardest period of making a golf change is the very start when everything's new, fresh, you haven't put many reps in. But then obviously as you put more practice in, things get easier, they get more efficient, you start to match everything up and you start to get more comfortable with it. And eventually, hopefully the goal is that it becomes the default. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes we need to continue to concentrate on a certain move, but yeah, the goal is to make that new thing default. But yeah, those are the two main reasons to make a change number one for me was injury prevention or reducing the severity of an existing injury and for you to change an impact goal you know low point control and so i would the worst thing that you can make a swing change for is for aesthetics reasons you know and unfortunately that's where 
I see 90% of golfers fall into that camp. They're making a swing change. Why? Because the swing change they want to do it looks prettier. And I always ask a player, like, what's the functional reason behind why you're making that change? How are you linking that to a change of impact? And if they can't give me that answer, then I try and convince them not to do that change because it's probably just a, an exercise in futility. Indeed. All right. Do we want to check that one off and move along? Yep. So number two, swing mechanics, choose an impact goal and add things to your motion to help achieve that impact goal or to reduce injury. Number three, John, what have you got? We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalance can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, brain fog, and weakness, which is the last thing you want when you're playing golf. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix. Each stick pack delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It's used by Olympians, professional athletes, special forces like the Navy SEALs, health experts, and for people like you and me who just want to maintain their everyday health. Now that it's a bit colder out, it gets crazy dry and hydration is as important as ever. Element has a ton of delicious flavors. I've tried a bunch of them and they just released their new chocolate medley line, which allows you to enjoy Element Hot. You've got chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry to choose from, and they're all designed to be enjoyed hot. They also have a no risk refund policy. If you don't like it, just send it back for a full refund. Now for our special offer for Sweet Spot listeners. If you want to give Element a try and get a free special gift, go to drinkelement.com forward slash sweet spot. Once again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash sweet spot. If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor LinkedIn by visiting linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere. And this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why 2.5 million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash sweetspot. That's linkedin.com slash sweetspot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes. I'm going off your list. I'm just like, I'm cheating today because you kind of had a good list here. But why don't we do, I mean, should I pick one out of the bag? Oh, you know what? I'm going to do an audible here because when I posted this on Twitter slash X, someone asked a question that I thought was relevant. How big of a deal is the mental game? Did you see that one? Someone was just asking in the context. Yeah, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I am currently writing a book on competitive golf, which I think the mental game plays a disproportionate role in. But if I had to summarize like what I think the mental game is, is that I think golf is a game of skill and skill is your upside. So your ability to control the golf club and the impact interval and do our big three, face contact, ground contact, and control the face. 
that is mainly your upside. I see the mental game similar to course management and some of the other things I've discussed in my work and on the show. I see these as like things you pepper in to give yourself more upside. So the best way I could describe it is if you gave me a golfer who had very low skills, but a quote unquote perfect mental game, they were committed over every shot. They were you know, doing breathing exercises and meditating and calm as hell and had a really good attitude after the round. I would say that they'll get the best version of that game, but they're not going to get a big breakthrough until they get that, you know, that skill taken care of and work on obviously the physical element of the game. My example of that, sorry to cut in, John, is uh, when I worked at Austria, we had Buddhist monks working at the hotel. And it was one of the Buddhist monks who used to want to learn to play golf. And obviously he had an amazing mental game. He was one of the happiest guys. Nothing (laughs) bothered him, nothing phased him, but he was absolutely awful at golf. (laughs) We obviously got him better through lessons. But yeah, if you don't have the technique, if you don't have the skill, then the best mental game in the world isn't going to do much for you. Go on then, John. I think it's very important also for your enjoyment of the game and also your performance as well. Like you want to, I'm all about efficiency. Like I am not the most talented golfer in the world. Like (laughs) you saw Lou Stagner posted, I don't know why I agreed to this, but Lou Stagner posted my swing. He did one of his guests, the handicap things. He's like, can I use your swing? He's like, do you have a video? I'm like, I have a video from a year ago if you want it. And then he goes and posts it and it gets like, millions of views and people are like that guy sucks he must be a 25 handicap and then he's like no this is actually i didn't know he was going to say it was me and then i was just like i muted the whole thing it was a disaster <laughs> but my view on my game is is that i don't have like elite physical talent i don't believe but i squeeze every single drop that that's how i love to play golf and i view the mental game as that as efficiency and i see players when i compete who shoot themselves in the foot all the time. I can tell you working with McKenzie, the reason he came to me is to hold him accountable to his mental game. And he even told me, he's like, I'm at my best when my mind is sharp and I've seen it. He's had three incredible results in a row because he's at peace with his game now. And he's really bought into his level of thinking right now. And I can see that. And I've been with him on the course around other tour players. I won't mention them who are absolute psychopaths. There's a lot of them out there. And they struggle. They don't achieve their potential because they're fighting against themselves and their brain all the time. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I forgot the name of the, let's see who wrote it here, Brad. I think that it's not the biggest deal, but it's like, one of the pieces of the game, if you want to reach your potential and be efficient, then like, yeah, you've got to be able to deal with your emotions and calming yourself down and commitment to shots and how you react to your rounds afterwards. Like the mental game to me is very important, but it's not as important as skill. It's also different for everybody. And I mean, there's so many elements to psychology. There's controlling anger, there's nerves, there's grit, there's expectation management, life philosophy as well. You know, for example, grit. How I define that is, you know, do you give up and start messing around on the golf course? So an example from me is if I'm really not playing well, or this used to be the case, if I'm really not playing well, I would start to do things on the course that I normally wouldn't. Like I'd start to really try and bust an eight iron there instead of hit a stock seven, or I'd try and do some long drive swings on the course. 
And then you just compound errors with that because you've given up at that point. You're not in this for a good game now. You're in this to hit hero shots to at least make you feel better for the fact you're playing bad. And so if you see that kind of pattern, if you see that you start to play a little bit poorly and then all of a sudden it collapses because you're doing that, then it's going to be an important element for you. Whereas, you know... Other things I suffer with, nerves. I get very, very nervous. Even when playing just with 15 handicapped players, I can stand there shaking on the, on the tee. It's just my personality. But it doesn't mean I play bad, you know. So for me, it, it's not really much point in going out to try and get rid of those nerves because it doesn't really affect my performance. If anything, I actually play better when I'm a little nervous. Well, that's the interesting thing to me is that because you're so skillful, you can override those nerves. So if you were, let's say, someone who had 50% of your skill and you were on the course with those nerves, I think those nerves would have a disproportionate, I can never prove this, this is just my belief, is that those nerves would have a disproportionate effect on the outcome. So some golfers are just so damn good, not to say that you can't eliminate nerves. We get nervous because we care. I think they're quite healthy. But- I think that the way I think about the mental game is that you have some players who are just so damn skillful that, yeah, they can make it to the PGA Tour even though they're a head case. But maybe they'd be a major winner if they took care of some of those mental things. And maybe if they don't, they'll just have a decent career and never reach their truest potential. So, yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me. Even the thought, like you mentioned grit, I recommend the book. Grit by Angela Duckworth. I mentioned it in my first book. I mean, her definition of grit is, I think, it's actually positive psychology. The definition of she has is a perseverance and passion for long-term goals. So I think most people hear grit and they're like, oh, I got to like white knuckle it. And I think we did an episode on this, but grit's like, grit would be an example of like, I'm struggling with my wedges. So I have a passion and perseverance to hopefully get to the goal of being better with them. But through that process, I'm going to have to deal with days where I'm sculling them, chunking them. And my grit, my perseverance, hopefully for the long-term goal of getting better at it will get me through those days. And that's a lot of what golf is, is that you have to keep your eye on the long-term view on those, even on those days where you suck and you're going to shoot some really high scores like that you know, you keep your eye on the prize, so to speak, and you can weather that storm. Like that's a good example of grit, in my opinion. Yeah. One of the things I want to work on this year, psychology wise, is as I've started to play a little bit more and I've started to play better, I've started to enjoy it less. And the reason Mm, why is, yeah, I've started, like I had a few good rounds last year. Like I had one that was seven under par, you know, a few that were under par and, it changed my expectations. You know, now I'm going out and I'm like, right, I want to, I want to have another one of those and I can go out and play. Okay. And walk off really upset with myself that I didn't make the most of it. This last round is a, a decent example of that. I mean, I shot five under par. I should be happy with that. And I've walked off really really upset because of those missed putts but you know i'm standing over shots i'm i hit it on the green and i kind of drop my club or i'm I'm feeling internal angst over it and so i need to 
reckon that well i'm already recognizing it but i need to kind of calm that down this year and work a little bit on my ego and uh, not taking those shots to heart maybe change my goals on the golf course a little bit more and go out and remind myself i'm out there playing for fun i need to get back to that i've lost that a little yeah and i think playing enough helps with that too because you know i know you probably don't play as much as i have on some years and I feel like if you're going to play 60, 70, 100 rounds of golf a year, that perspective could be easier to find. But if you're only playing, like you're good enough where you can only still, because you're, you're hitting balls all the time in your house. And like you can go out and probably play 10 or 15 times a year. And half of those rounds could be excellent. And then the other half, you're like, crap, why didn't I do that? But if you played like 80 times a year, I'd guess you're going to figure out a way to manage your expectations more effectively just because you have more reps at it. I think it's so hard because the less you play, the game is so variable, like the more kind of Jekyll and Hyde it'll feel. Whereas if you have more of a data set, I guess would be the correct term, a bigger data set, then you could even out a bit more and kind of also get the mental reps of dealing with it. That's it. I mean, for me as well, because I'm not playing much, like you said, I'm probably in the summer, I'm playing maybe once every two weeks or so in the winter, maybe once a month. And so most of the mistakes I'm making on the course are not execution errors as such, but it's I'll hit a wedge and I'll be like, how did that fly this far? And especially in Vegas, like I go from playing 120 degrees in the summer and then last time I played it was 35 degrees or for our European listeners from 50 degrees Celsius to zero degrees Celsius and there's a big change in distances and so I really can struggle to adapt to that on the course and so yeah it's even more frustrating for me when an error is not down to hitting a bad shot but down to a mental thing because I feel like come on you should be doing better than that so yeah i need to just calm that down a little bit remind myself that i'm out there for fun not playing that yeah but also like in the context of like ideas to improve it is as simple as like you need to be playing enough golf to get those little things like when i don't like i played in florida in december so this was three weeks ago i played one round there because i didn't want to overdo it with my elbow and that was the first round i played in two months and I came out like birdie, birdie, like hitting wedges very close. And then all of a sudden, like a few shots came up where I'm like, you know, that is rust. And it's just, I don't have the playing skills of being out there like I normally do where I'm playing enough. And like, I have those little things. I know how to make those tiny adjustments with the wind, even temperature, stuff like that. But that's just reps. Like you have to be playing enough golf to like get all that in it. It's hard to... I haven't come across many players who could do that, who play a small amount and then they they get those little things, you know, in check. So always an important reminder. All right. Does that, I don't even know what, what did we even do there? So I, I we've done goal setting. <laughs> we've done swing mechanics. Yeah. We've touched on golf psychology, which has many different factors to it. I veered off the plot a little bit there. Skill development can be number four. So skill development, how does it differ to technique? Well, technique is what you do. Skills are abilities. So for example, you could have performance skills, like the ability to hit a fairway. So you can have different techniques that hit the fairway 
similarly you know you could have someone who cuts across it one way and someone who cuts across it the other way a drawer versus a fader using different techniques but they could be equally as accurate you can also have you know shot making skills like your ability to hit a punch shot under a tree or hook it around a tree or hit from different lies we obviously then talk hugely about impact skills so the ability to move a strike more towards a toe or heel the ability to hit the ground different depths, maybe dig in a little bit deeper, maybe pick it off the surface next one or move the ground contact location. And then the ability to control face direction is obviously gonna have the effect on your outcome. So you work on skill development, slightly different uh, technique. You know, technique, you're maybe videoing your swing, looking at your motion skills. You're just getting feedback on what you're trying to improve and maybe throw in a little bit of exploration. So, you know, to improve face strike skill, for example, you might spend some time hitting some shots off the toe, hitting some shots off the heel, which is technically bad technique but it's developing your awareness and your ability to make a change. Why are skills important? Because 99% of the time there is some form of error to your shot. If you hit 100 balls, maybe one of them is perfect. The other 99 needs some kind of calibration or adjusting. And so your ability to do that, move a heel strike more toe side, and to do it precisely, that is vital. So that is skill development in a nutshell. John, what do you have to add to that? I mean, just thinking back to my little session last night I was doing, I kind of did both. I did a little bit of the technique work. I looked, I took a video of my taking a wedge shot and just was like, my chest isn't moving. There is no rotation there. I'm going to rotate. And I'm like, oh, great. This feels great. Awesome. I'm seeing better results. And then I'm hitting my driver. Granted, I'm only hitting 10 balls because I don't want to kill my elbow. Everything was low left. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not hitting a lot of balls. So what can I do to open the face up? And by the 10th ball, I was starting the ball to the right of my target because I was adjusting my face angle, essentially, at impact, which is, that's my bread and butter, you know, practice to begin with is mostly like focusing on those impact skills and not giving a damn about what the technique in my swing looks like or feels like. I have no idea half the time what I'm doing. So yeah, there was a mixture of both for once because for whatever reason, I need a little bit of technique work to help with the impact of the wedge play. Whereas with the driver, this is more maintenance stuff. I'm not making any big changes. I'm just trying to stay fresh but when I see something low left, I know the, the club face is closed down, easy fix, flash it open. And that's the same thing I would do on the golf course. So it's just constant calibration of my skills that will never end as long as I live. Yeah. <laughs> same for me. So my practice session the other day, I spent maybe a third of it doing, focusing on the motion, focusing on everything turning together so that I'm not injuring my shoulder. While I did that, I hit it horribly. And that's important to understand. I, I really hit it horribly. And it's where you place your attention as well. I'm so focused in that technique moment on the internals, right? What's my arm doing? What's my body doing? I'm so focused on that that the thought of impact just completely went out of my awareness. And that was a, I actually made a note on that because that's probably where most golfers are. They're so busy focusing on their motion that they just, 
completely unaware or inattentive to impact skills. And so the latter part of that, the next 20 minutes, I started to focus more on impact skills, you know, trying to, I was hitting everything a little off the toe, a little fat. So I was just trying to move the ground contact forwards and hit it a little bit more from the heel until I got the desired shot. And then again, because I'm focusing on impact skills, my technique wanted to move back to my old motion. So there's this, this kind of balance. I mean, if you do it in the right way, you'll end up getting the best of both worlds. This is where periodization comes in. And so, you know, for now, I'm a little bit more focused on technique when I'm training, just so I get that motion ingrained as a feel. And then when I'm on the course, I start, I switch that focus more to impact skills because the impact skills are what matter. They what, they what create the result. The last 20 minutes of that session then was spent putting myself into a game-like scenario. So I went on to the simulator, placed myself on a hole, 17th at Sawgrass, and started hitting some shots there, trying to get that nice blend of the new motion and the impact skills. You know what? I did the GS Pro software. I'll give a shout out. Some of the enthusiasts had messaged me on Twitter like they were updating the software. They have some custom skills tests on there now and they have the Operation 36 which is, you know, a pretty popular junior program, but I actually with my wedge play, I did the Operation 36 skill test which kind of like gave me a bunch of different wedge shots around the green. Again, similar to what you said, I was doing some technical work early in the session. Now it's time to kind of test myself, so I did that as well on the GS Pro, which for all you simulator enthusiasts is a pretty cool piece of software. It's open source, so they're kind of always adding stuff to it. You want to hear a funny story about that? I, <laughs> I've been messing around with AI to generate images just for Twitter. I've seen that, yeah. And I did one where I'm like, well, what if there was a, a golf course in Central Park? Oh, I saw and that, it went yeah. viral. Yeah. Like it went crazy. Like everyone on Twitter. And then on Instagram, this is what happens on Instagram is I don't go on Instagram a lot, but like if someone likes, like most Instagram accounts are just like taking other people's stuff. So all of a sudden, like all the biggest Instagram golf accounts were like taking the picture and putting it on there. And it went wild. So someone in the GS Pro community, I think, designed a Central Park golf course. Oh, nice. Because of that. So I think it's out or coming out. They sent me the you I got royalties. Uh, no, well, it's all AI free. I don't want to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, we might not even be a podcast in three years. Maybe we'll just set up, we'll upload our brains to the AI and it'll do it for us. There's a lot of legal ramifications there. But anyway, I veered off topic. But yes, I think... What we discussed, that progression, especially like going from technique to skill and then having your focus on the impact on the course, like that's like the goal. Like you don't want to be playing technique on the course. We oh, talk I would about hate that all the time. to be like, stuck. It sucks. The mode I was in when I was thinking about my yeah. swing, I used to be that player. And I know many golfers are that player so obsessed with what the motion is doing that you lose complete awareness of impact. I never want to be that player on the golf course again. I just couldn't imagine going back to that style of thinking. Yeah, I think just probably a really good point for pe people to listen to. Maybe rewind 30 yeah, seconds, listen to it again. I think you should aspire like that. I think that's what being an athlete is. Yes. Yeah. I always love talking about other sports. Like, do you think Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi are like thinking about what their knees and ankles are doing to like kick a free kick? Like, no, they're looking at the target and they're just letting it rip. Like, that's what great athletes do. And I think that's what great golfers do. They see target and they hit. 
That's is, always what I have in mind when I with whatever I'm doing. This is the biggest not, not argument. Not to say I'm, I'm not Ronaldo. <laughs> I'm just trying to make my own argument version of that. Golf instruction, isn't it? Is whether you should think more instinctively or whether you should think about mechanics. And obviously, every single teacher out there is on the side of thinking mechanically. I think the the right answer is probably that blend. Right, you do a, a little bit of your practice yeah, you thinking right about blend. body motion. Hopefully that starts to ingrain itself and then you go back to your athletic skills over time. With skill training as well, trying to note down whether you're an over or an under corrector is important. So for example, if someone is hitting out of the toe of the club and then they try to hit the next one out of the heel, well, if the next one is too much from the heel, they're an over corrector. If the next one is too much from the toe, they're an under corrector. And you can actually monitor these things and write down little little bits of data, little bits of feedback to see which one you are. And eventually over time, it will balance itself. But yeah, just having to think for people if you're an over or an under corrector. And there might be different skills that you're different, you know, in face strike. I know I'm definitely an under corrector. You know, I tend to hit off the toe and I have to really feel as if I push it to get it anywhere off the, close to off the heel. Whereas with direction, I can be an overcorrector. So I just, knowing that just makes me understand the effort level I have to make when I'm making a change. So if I want to change face strike, I have to really, really focus on it and really try and overdo it. Whereas when I'm changing direction, I have to be more subtle in nature. Yeah, that is exactly the same way I am. If I'm trying to move a heel strike a little bit over the center, I'm going to try and hit it off the toe and it's going to move it however many millimeters. But if I try and exaggerate that too much with closing the or opening the face, then that could be a disaster. So that's self-awareness. That's super important. And that's what, you know, practice and paying attention on the course does for you. All right. Do we want to move on? I think the segue would be to go into practice improvements. So understanding how to practice better, because we just talked a little about, you know, how to structure your practice going from that technique to that skill to maybe the playing. And so, yeah, I mean, there's so many ways that people can practice better. I mean, John, what mistakes do you see from people practicing right now? The overarching mistake I see is intent. I don't think people have enough intent when they practice. And I wrote about that in my book and we talk about it a lot, but I view intent could be as simple as a target. So I know as a junior golfer, I would show up to the range and I'd just be rifling through the bucket and just be hitting it like quote unquote out there. And because I didn't have a target, I didn't have the appropriate feedback on whether I missed it left, right, short, long, the ball just kind of went out there. And I was like, oh, I'm hitting it well. I would convince myself that I I think the main struggle I had in the first half of my golf life was that I thought I was way better than I was based on the range because I was just like, it looked like everything was good. <laughs> and then I get on the course and be like, well, I'm not that good. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I had very little healthy intent in the way I practice. And that could be as basic as, you know, target. Um, and then there's a lot of other ways, you know, you can have intent with everything we talk about, whether it's impact intent, movement intent, but just having some type of focus to evaluate yourself on so you can measure the feedback against it and see if you need to adjust. Did you do well? That's how I view it in a generic sense. Yeah, I think having some kind of goal when you practice is important. And as everybody would say, yeah, no 
S Sherlock, how obvious, have some kind of goal. But uh, if you actually sit down and think about it, probably 90% of people listening to this don't have goals when they go and practice. Their goal is, I'm just going to go and hit some balls. And, oh, I hope I have a good day. <laughs> you know, There's no awareness of what they're doing. There's no analysis going on. It's just hit balls and see if I'm good today or not. I think actually our audience is much more educated because we've hammered in the big three. They're at least on some level aware of those things. But you know, have some kind of goal. It could be, right, I'm going to work on putting some reps in to change the movement that we've talked about. Or, you know, occasionally when I go in, my goals are going to be improve the big three impact factors. And usually I'll even boil that down to looking at my last round, seeing what cost me more. Maybe a toe shot, maybe a fat shot, maybe hitting it too far left. And then dedicating my practice towards neutralizing that as a pattern. So, you know, usually the golden rule I talk about is taking the pattern, the fault, and trying the opposite or introducing something to, of the opposite so you neutralize it. But yeah, having a goal and then getting quality feedback on it as well, some sort of feedback. Obviously, the ball flight is going to give you feedback on path and face. If you can get a launch monitor involved, great, but you don't need it necessarily. I, I mean, if your path is getting too far out of whack, you'll see that in the curvature of the shot. Face strike, obviously we can use the face spray or foot spray rather on the face, Dr. Scholl's, to see where you're hitting on the face. And you can see also the lateral toe or heel and you can see the vertical nature of that as well. So if it's high on the face, that's a very good sign that you've hit it fat, you've hit too far behind it. And obviously if you hit low on the face, that's a thin shot. So that allows you to get a good proxy for ground contact. But the other form of feedback we use all the time, the best form for ground contact would be the divot board if you can't get actual ground contact playing on a grass range. So divot boards, they're on, uh, I don't wanna say they aren't offer now because they, they might not be, but they're worth it either way. So yeah, those forms of feedback, the amount of practice that you do as well could be something you could increase or I wouldn't say decrease for most people. That's not gonna help them unless they're injury prone like yourself. But then you could just change the quality of it, right? But that could be a goal for people to improve the amount, you know, set a habit, right? I'm gonna practice three times a week. I prefer people to do more sessions of shorter. Like if someone said, I've got an hour, how would you split it? I'd rather people do 20 minutes three times a week than to do one hour once a week. I think you get more out of it that way by splitting it, if that's possible. But yeah, in terms of quality, what you're doing right now, I mean, talk about with your injury, you're not able to hit as many balls. So what have you done? What are you changing in your practice to make sure you yeah, can I still mean, do it? Well, as I was hitting balls yesterday, I was like, this injury actually, I try and be a glass half full person. So, you know, I know I can't hit, and I'm not a, I've spoken about this before. I'm not someone who hits, you know, 200 balls at a time. I'm able to hit in my house. I have the simulator. It's nice. But I know some people, if they had a setup like that, they'd be in there for four hours a day. I'm not like that. I'm more of like a grazer. So like 10, 15 minutes a day at night, I'll be hitting balls. My point is, is that because I'm trying to limit myself with my rehab schedule, I'm doing my rehab on my elbow every 48 hours. And the PT I'm working with is like, he's like, don't do three things in a day. So the three physical things I do that constrain my elbow are the rehab, weightlifting and hitting golf balls. And he told me only do two out of three of those. So moderation or a different version of my two thirds rule. So right now 
on the off day, I'm going to hit balls and I've limited myself to only 30 or 40 balls. And because of that, my point is, is that it's giving me actually more intention on each shot. I'm not going to go hit 30 drivers. I'm only going to hit five or 10 because I don't want to just, you know, stress my elbow, but I don't want to stress it too much because at the point I'm at, I have tendinosis, which is when tendinitis goes a bit too far and you've got more permanent damage. You don't stop what you're doing. You have to keep doing it to strengthen it and stress it at the same time. So yeah, with the limited balls I can hit, I'm trying to be incredibly intentional, taking more time between each shot. So as disciplined as I try and be with practice, I make the same mistakes that everyone else does. I know sometimes I'll rifle through the bucket too quick or in my house too quickly and not think about what I'm doing. So it's actually been nice that it's gotten me to you know, really think about target, intention, feedback, and work with limited time. So yeah, that's uh, you know, nothing new for us, but being as efficient and intentional as possible is just super important. Yeah. And even adding context. So, you know, we talk a lot about playing on the simulator and we actually play rounds of golf. So context just means you're making it more realistic. And so when you're on the simulator, you hit a drive, then you hit a seven iron and you're focusing, you've got more of the variables involved. You're looking at the wind on the simulator. You're looking at the lie, how that's going to affect it. You're looking at the distance. You've got strategy involved. So it takes you know, if I'm in an hour in the simulator, I'm going to hit far fewer shots. And if I'm just beating balls on the range, trying to hit my seven iron to a given target, uh, I'm also stepping out of the bay, changing clubs each time. So it is a good way of cutting down on the amount of reps that you do whilst increasing the effectiveness of each rep. And even on swing changes as well, you know, people talk about, oh, well, if you're making a swing change, you have to hit a ton of balls. That's not true. I mean, I can't remember where I read it, but it was about Tiger talking about how sometimes he'd only hit two to 10 balls in an hour. And that was really highlighting to me. So what's he doing in that time? Well, he's doing a lot of visualization of what he wants to do. He's doing a lot of practice swings, over-exaggerating it. He's doing maybe a lot of analysis after each shot, stepping back, having a look at video, perhaps seeing what uh, whether he made that move or not. And so, yeah, he'd hit very few balls, but there would be a huge amount of intention and attention to each shot that he hits. Yeah, I've heard that story before too. Another player, there's a similar story with, I think, Jason Day. Someone was kind of witnessing his wedge practice. You know, when Jason Day was number one in the world, I think that was, you know, around, uh, I want to say 2016, something like that, maybe the tail end of the Spieth run. He was pretty sure he was the best like greenside wedge player as well or top five he was just incredible and someone like watched him practice his wedges and they said like he went through i mean he has like that crazy visualization thing he does before each shot but they were like he was so intense and like measured and similar to tiger like only it took a few minutes between each shot and i don't expect normal golfers to do this but you can take some of that rather than just hit, 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 (laughs) you know, the more intention you give each shot and the more visualization and what target you're trying to achieve, that's how we transfer it over to the golf course. Because on the golf course, as we all know, you don't get to hit that seven iron 20 times and, and lull yourself into that false confidence by the 18th shot. doesn't work that way. 
Yeah, it's not just about quantity of reps. It's about the quality of each rep as well. You know, someone rifling through 60 balls in 20 minutes or even less, I, I wouldn't take that person over the, over the person who's got full intention. You know, they're getting feedback on what they're doing. And, you know, you can rifle through balls as long as you've got the right mindset. I mean, when we're hitting, we are very attentive even if we're in block practice mode, we're very attentive to where did I hit on the face, where did I hit the ground, and obviously direction. We're not we're not reaching for the next ball without even monitoring the last one. Whereas there, there are lots of times in lessons where someone will hit a shot, they'll be rolling the next ball in, and I'll say, where did you hit that last one on the face? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Obviously, I got a quad then, I can show them that, but that just shows me that they're not paying attention to these variables. So you always got to have some kind of goal, pay attention to it, get feedback on it, and then quantify. Did you actually, at the end of your practice session, did you improve what you were trying to improve? You don't always, I don't feel you have to always improve the variable, but as long as you're trying to, I think it's a valuable session. You know, this is like a random thought that made me think of it. So I transitioned from the SkyTrack to the GC3, and a lot of people don't, like the original SkyTrack because there was like a six to eight second delay between when you hit the ball and when you saw it. And I hit, I don't know, tens of thousands of balls on my SkyTrack. And it made me so keenly aware of right at impact what happened that even with the GC3, which is like a second, like I know, oh, heel, high right, like close the face down, like that's going to be low left. Like that conditioned me so well to absorb the impact feedback with my hands with was the club shut or too open? Did I heal it? Did I tow it? Was it fat? All of our stuff. And it was like this unexpected training aid benefit of that delay where some people were like, oh, tell me the ball flight, that delay of not knowing what it was doing and internalizing like what my hands felt. I think that like trained me to be keenly aware of impact conditions. Yeah. Something that I'd add to that that's very similar is after you hit a shot, don't just immediately go to the feedback source. Try and guess what you did beforehand. So say, for example, you're using face spray. Don't just hit the shot and then look down. Before there's an intermediate step you should take, hit the shot and ask yourself, where did I think I hit that on the face? And be specific about it. Don't just say, oh, that was toe or heel. Was it a little bit toe? Was it a mid toe? Was it a big toe? Like be as specific as you can about it before you get that feedback. Because otherwise you can get into zombie mode. You can be getting feedback and not absorbing it as well. 100%. Yeah. You just play like the guessing game and see if you're right. And the more you see it, the more you're going to get it right in the future. All so right. Practice improvements here. number, I think it's number five or number six. So have a plan. Don't just go there and hit balls. Have something you want to achieve, whether that's a movement change or an impact factor you want to try and improve. You can also increase your practice amount if you want to or improve the quality of your practice. So that's rep intensity, maybe focus of attention. Maybe it's the context, you know, putting yourself more into a situation where it's realistic. Get feedback on it quantify it and then maybe even record that feedback to see if you did improve that variable that you were trying to improve or not all right can i uh you want me to pick the next one yeah go ahead why don't we do speed everyone speed keeps it's still like the top 
it's getting more and more popular club head speed and, and you know golfers wanting to increase it and if you've been listening to the show for a long time we've provided you with a lot of different resources we've had let me think back we've had mike carroll on the show talking about you know his methods of increasing speed we've had Super Speed Golf. I think it was Dr. Tyler Standiford. He came on the show. We've had Sasha McKenzie. We've had Dr. Greg Rose, the co-founder of the Titleist Performance Institute. He did a great episode on that. So we've gotten a lot of different resources. And it's interesting, the more and more like it becomes important and the more people I talk to about it who are, you know, invested in the research and experts on it, they all don't agree. And I find that in a lot of things in golf. I'm sure you've come across this in your career, Adam. Like, I think there's a lot of people who say like, oh, I have the answer on this. And then you talk to someone else and like, no, I have the answer on this and it's this. And they're not the same thing. So the more I've looked into the speed thing, the more I think there's different answers for everyone. Some people, like if they just do the overspeed training with the stack or super speed golf and there's other companies popping up, like that can move the needle. Some people might have a strength deficiency in their lower body, their trunk or their upper body. That could do it. Some people need to be more explosive. Like Mike Carroll has all those jumping protocols. It seems like there's different ways to skin that cat. And and you would know way more about this than me, but there's also technical interventions in the golf swing that can unlock more speed where you don't have to get stronger or do the overspeed. Like there's something in your golf swing that's holding you back technically. So I think there's a lot of things you can do. And I've done a lot of them and increased my speed. But, you know, most of them work. But then to keep going, like my belief is, is that most people hit a plateau and I did. And to get past that plateau, then they need to get more specific. Well, it might be lower body stuff. It might be mobility. It might be explosiveness. And then the training starts to change. But for the most part, like I would say, if you get stronger, if you lift weights, if you do the overspeed training, if you do some mobility work, you do some of like the jumping explosiveness stuff, like I'd be shocked if you don't pick up some club head speed. Yeah, I don't have much to add on the speed stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's something I'm going to explore a lot more at some point. I've had much better success in getting speed gains from others than I have from myself. (laughs) But then I've I've never done speed training. So what I have done is a lot of weight training. But I've talked about how I, from the age of, what, 15 to now, I'm probably 60 pounds heavier not all of that, unfortunately, is muscle, but a, a decent amount of it is. Unfortunately, a little bit too much fat as well. But yeah, in that 60 pound of weight gain with a lot of weight training, I didn't pick up any speed at all, maybe one, two mile an hour. So uh, I need to get on the stack system and stop talking about it and actually do it. But unfortunately, yeah, I got so I mean, many other I've, goals. I know. I think I've done it all at this point And you hit different walls. So like I hit a wall with the overspeed training and then refocusing my efforts on like full body strength training pushed it further because there was a strength deficiency there, mostly in my lower body, I believe. I skipped leg day for my entire life. Now I just like, I love doing squats and deadlifts and all the different glute stuff. Like I'm very much into leg day also because I can't stress my elbow too much right now. But that has helped me go from like, you know, my speed had dropped probably to about a hundred miles an hour with my driver. And I got it back up to like 108, 110. I think half of that, if I had to guess was overspeed. And then the other half was the weight training. 
but again, it's different for everyone. So like you probably had, if I'm remembering back to, you know, Dr. Rose's episode, my guess is you didn't have a strength deficiency. You had an explosiveness deficiency okay, and that overspeed dis- training <laughs> or genetic. Yeah. I mean, there's, we all have our limits. Like, and yeah, some people parents. like at some point you're going to hit your limit. Like if some people like want to set out, like I see people doing these challenges, like I want to dunk a basketball and some people like achieve it. And it's like, whoa, how do you do that? And like everyone else, like some other people, like you can train your whole life and you're never going to dunk a basketball. Like we do have our genetic limitations eventually, but it's kind of fun finding out. I like doing it because I like finding out where that limit is. It's kind of cool to me because in the process, I'm going to get healthier, like doing all this stuff, lifting the weights, the overspeed training, you know, jumping, all that stuff. Like that is great for your body. It's good for your heart. It's good for your muscles, good for bone density, good for your cholesterol levels, your heart, everything. It's awesome. So I'm all about it. But yeah, there's as much as I've learned about it, like I think most people will get like if most people bought like the stack or super speed, like they'll, they'll see some gains for sure. But then like after six months, they might plateau and it's like, well, now you might have to hit the gym and get stronger or vice versa. It can even be a um, flexibility issue. I mean, yeah, playing uh, in the cold oh, at the moment and I've got all this gear on to try and keep yeah, myself warm. Help. And uh, that just makes me see that, well, there are plenty of people out there who every day because of their inflexibility that it's like they're swinging with a bunch of gear on because yeah. the body just can't move into certain range of motion. And yeah, my speed will drop five mile an hour when I put my jackets on and get nice and warm and toasty, but that ball doesn't go as far because my body just can't move into certain ranges. Yeah, I would also say mobility probably doesn't move the needle as much based on what I understand from it. But if you lift weights, like you're working on your mobility as well because you're putting your body through range of motion under tension. But like, I did a lot of hip stuff for a year because my lower back was tight. So a lot of like those 90-90 movements, a lot of different like hip mobility stuff. And like, I think that probably added some speed too, because now I'm making a bigger turn likely and you're getting more hand depth and that's going to get you more swing speed. And I've seen some instructors who focus on the technical stuff, you know, hand path. Also another one that just came to mind, tempo training. We had John Novosel Jr. from Tor Tempo. I have been the unofficial ambassador for Tor Tempo for like nine years now. I'm happy to like get people to buy that app because it's awesome. I've seen so many people who've like messaged me that when they use the Tor Tempo beats and they get their backswing faster, just through the ad intention, oh my God, I added 10 yards, 20 yards. Like that could do it as well. So I think there's a, a bunch of different ways to skin that cat. Grip strength um, is an interesting one. I, there's a very strong correlation between grip strength and speed. But yeah, correlation, but, and we're going to do an yeah. episode on this. Correlation doesn't equal causation. What I'd want to see is the studies where you improve grip strength in people and then see if it has an effect on swing speed. I got a yeah, feeling that those, s- those <laughs> long drivers, they're doing so many deadlifts that that improves their str- grip strength and that you know, it's just correlated to speed, not actually causing. Exactly. I think the argument is if you have a lot of swing speed, you likely are quite strong. If you are likely quite strong, you have lifted a lot of weights. If you've lifted a lot of weights, the byproduct of that is incredibly good grip strength. So then the argument to that was, well, if it was just grip strength, if you took someone who had poor swing speed and poor strength and you just had them do grip strength exercises, would that move the needle as much as getting more holistically stronger and explosive? Probably not. 
I've seen some arguments go back and forth on that on social media. And I think a lot of people have said, well, just like what you said, like grip strength is a byproduct of a lot of other things um, that just showed up. And if you just isolated that one thing, it won't move the needle as much as you think. That's at least my layman understanding of it. Yeah, as even for anybody's given grip strength, say you take one person and N equals one study and you ask them to grip it tighter or lighter, you see different results of people. Some people swing it faster when they grip it tighter. Some people swing it faster when they grip it lighter. I've seen more of a correlation between lighter and faster. And I personally see that when I want to get an extra 10 yards, really ramp up my swing speed, I will grip it very, very light. But that's not true for everybody. And it's this contradiction because, you know, we see this effort level sometimes correlating to higher swing speeds or lower effort, you know, lighter grips correlating to higher swing speeds. Yet, if you put measurement devices on grips, you see that the higher tensions in the grip correlate with higher speeds because, like you said, those stronger grips, those people with stronger hand strength tend to have faster swing speeds so yeah it's it needs more research done on it i know there are guys out there who are doing that research so it'll be interesting to see what happens but one of the easy ways you can do is just test it yourself you know make 10 swings going through different levels of grip tension for yourself so grip it as tight as you can make 10 swings grip it as light as you can 10 swings go in between and keep testing the entire scale and see what uh, what produces the best performance for you in terms of both speed and outcome of direction. Yeah. And the last one I'll, that just popped into my head that I know is super important is just intention. If you want to swing your driver faster and Mike Carroll puts this in all of his protocols, I know Mike Carroll's with the stack now and he loves all the overspeed stuff, but one of the tried and true things that he gives to tour players he works with and everyone else's, and I've done it too, You need to set aside a certain amount of swings during your practice with your driver where you go, for all our space ball fans, ludicrous speed. (laughs) You just have to go absolutely wild and, you know, use the speed monitor, the PRGR and see what you can get your swing speed up to. For me, my top level speed doing that's like 114, 115. I don't care where I strike it on the face. I don't care where the golf ball goes. But that's part of the training too, is that you need to reserve a certain amount of driver swings where you just go ludicrous on the ball. And that is, again, moving the reference point of your swing so that my cruising speed can be 108, 109 on the golf course because I did those 115 mile per hour swings. So that's another method that anyone could do. Like you don't need to buy all the products or lift the weights, but just trying to swing harder for a certain amount of swings during your practice sessions will move the needle as well. Yeah, I've seen the biggest increases in speed just from asking people to swing faster. <laughs> Stupid as yeah. that because what do they do? They'll probably like, and you self-organize. I've seen it with the overspeed training too. It's like, oh, I want to make that mile per hour higher on the radar. Well, I'm going to pick up my lead foot a little bit. I'm going to turn, you know, I'm going to figure out like I'm going to get a little bit more depth in my hands and a little bit more turn in my swing. Like you're going to probably self-organize in ways to move that number up. And a lot of those things happen to probably coincide with better ball striking too for a lot of players. And as we've discussed um, in so the past, yeah. lot, lots of people are just holding back a lot anyway because of myths, yeah. you know, swing it slow, yeah. swing it easy. Control. 
oh, I hit it better when I swing it easy. And, uh, you know, I've done tests with people. 10 balls swinging it easy, 10 balls lashing at it. Let's see the results. And yeah, okay, the dispersion sometimes might be a little bit wider, but the distance that they pick up can often override that in terms of strokes gained. Yeah, at some point you got to let it rip. So yeah, with speed, like to bring things full circle in the context of this conversation, ways to improve in 2024, if you add three, five, seven miles per hour to your swing, and preserve your swing fundamentals, you do it the right way, you're improving your chances of of scoring. You're going to hit it farther. That's better with strokes gain. Go to our episode with Mark Brody. We've talked about it a bunch. You're going to hit your irons higher and farther. You're going to be able to get out of the rough more effectively. Like There's a lot of spillover effects to having more speed in your swing. I've seen them personally it gives you a better opportunity to score better. So it is, I put this in my book, I view, you know, growing up, we didn't think of swing speed as a skill. It was just like, you either had it or you didn't have it. Like, oh, that guy can hit it far, great, I'm not that guy. And there was just like no discussion on what you could do to change it. I now look at swing speed, I think of it the same as like my putting speed control, my distance wedge control, my ability to hit my irons on the sweet spot, ground contact, face control. I view it as one of those skills. And that's why I worked on it for years. And it's genuinely helped me. Like I believe that there's no chance I win two club championships and get into the US Mid-Am and become a better tournament player because I can drive it 290, 300 now when I'm moving well. Whereas I used to hit it like 265, 270. It improved my scoring average. It's a big deal. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And we've had many resources on the show and we probably will continue to do so. But yeah, it's an important skill. Don't forget about it. What Bryson did is a great example of what can be done, (laughs) whether or not he did it in the right way, uh, you know, the amount of training he overdid it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. he he overdid it and now he's dialing it back. But listen, he won a US Open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He won a US Open. You can't like within a short period of time of doing that the guy won a us open and he's got to have that for the rest of his life so it's hard to say it was a failure i think he won other times as well yeah when he put on all that mass he trained like a long drive champion you know hitting hundreds of balls if not thousands of balls each day at full pelt like i said it's probably not the best thing for your body overall but it got the results that he wanted and he, I mean, do you see him compete in the long drive champ? That yeah, was it was special. incredible. He was hitting at 400. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's I, good. I'm not a big him. Bryson fan. Like, I've never, like, rooted for him hardcore, but I respect the hell out of him and, like, how far he pushes himself. Yeah. You always need someone like that to, like, push the boundaries to see what's possible. And there is no question that tons of other pro golfers followed suit. There's a reason why Rory McIlroy's ball speed went from 175 to 184. It was because of Bryson. He even admitted it. Like tons of other players saw him and they're like, I'm not going to do what he did, but I'm going to do some of it. Kind of reminds, you know, that (laughs) it's totally off topic. Have you seen that blueprint guy? The guy who's like obsessed with long, oh, you would love this. The guy, what's his name? Brian Oh, you haven't seen this guy who's obsessed with like reversing his age? He was like a big tech. Oh, yeah, I've seen uh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. He's yeah, he so there's made his billions and now he's uh he's like getting up at four in the morning, exercising, eating 
Nothing oh, he's but doing chia like seeds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like got gets his blood drawn like a hundred times a day and checking every biomarker. Yeah, he probably die. Uh, at but age this 50, guy, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's gonna get hit by a bus. Actually, I shouldn't have said that. I hope he doesn't get hit by a bus. But he is. He's pushing the limits on like what we know about longevity. And there are people who are following along and they're like, I'm not going to be crazy like this guy because I can't spend $4 million a year on my body, but I'm going to do some of it and it gets them to be healthier. So I actually think Bryson, you know, did something interesting and did something extreme and learned something from it. And the rest of us kind of, you know, took from it. So I actually applaud his efforts with, yeah, with the too. speed. Uh, I was very impressed the with him at the, uh, at the long drive, keeping up with those guys who do it for yeah, a living. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, that was crazy. Like totally different skill set. Yeah. Should we leave the other stuff for another episode? Yeah, let's cap it off there. I guess we'll make this kind of a two-parter. I think the overall uh, idea is to, instead of seeing improvement as what's the one thing that's going to drop 10 shots off my game, try and see it as, well, there are 10 different areas at least that you can go into that you can start to improve and see which ones that you're lacking in the most and put more of your efforts there. But golf is about incremental gains in lots and lots of different areas. I firmly believe that yeah, this game is kind of like a jigsaw puzzle and we all have like our own pieces that fit in a certain way, but there's definitely reoccurring themes, setting the right goals, swing mechanics, skill development, you know, what else do we talk about? Mental games, swing speed. Yeah, there's some of us need more work on certain ones than other. And the whole goal of this show is to kind of give you ideas. And then you only have to take like one of these things. Like if you came away from this show or reading Adam's book or my book and you get one idea from it, you're like, I'm going to try that tempo app or I'm going to try hitting it off the toe or the heel. That's all you need sometimes. And that sets you off on your path. So we try and give you as many ideas as possible. I don't, I hope you don't think we want you to try them all at the same time, but hopefully something resonates with you and you're like, all right, I'm going to give that a shot. And you go on your merry way and, and hopefully become a better and happier golfer. So I think we'll always continue to do that on this show. But yeah, let's wrap it up there. I think we did five or six. I lost count. Yeah, there's goal setting, swing mechanics, skill development, psychology, speed and fitness, and practice improvements. All right. So we did 5.5 to 6. Okay. All right. Well, uh, many of these resources you can find in our work. Adam, where can everyone find your stuff? Yeah, I've got a ton of information on swing mechanics, skill development, practice, and even psychology uh, in Next Level Golf, my program. But there are other programs you can get as well, adamyounggolf.com, and then click on where it says improvement products or products, and you'll see my list of uh, game improvement bits of information there. John, where can people find you? You can find a lot of it in my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, and in my forthcoming book, The Foundations of Winning Golf. So we'll be talking about more of uh, how to win some money off your buddies in match play, tournaments, club competitions, uh, helping everyone get better in a competitive context. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We will continue this conversation in part two, and we'll see you then.